1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deep Waters podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking you to bring the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics, and today is no exception. A few months or so ago, my folks talk, were talking to me on the phone and said, We saw this lady on Bill O'Reilly's show, and she was talking about a book about marriage and the culture today. Why don't you look it up and see who it is, and maybe you should have her on your show. Before... I looked it up, and my parents couldn't remember who it was. I was thinking, that sounds like Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse of the Roof Institute. And I looked up the book, *The Sexual State*. Yes, it's by As She Goes, Dr. J. And she's here to talk to us today. She's the founder of the Roof Institute, a global nonprofit organization equipping Christians to defend the family and build a civilization of love. She was a campaign spokeswoman for California's winning Prop 8 campaign, defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman. She has offered, co-authored six books and spoken around the globe. Her work has been translated to Spanish, Chinese, Korean, Polish, Chuki, and Chukis, the native language of the Micronesian Islands. Her latest book is The Sexual State, how elite ideologies are destroying lives and why the church was right or alone. <laughs> she earned her PhD at the University of Rochester, and taught economics at Yale and George Mason Universities. She was named one of the Catholic Stars of 2013 on a list that included Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI. Dr. Morris and her husband are parents of an adopted child, a birth child, a goddaughter, and were foster parents for San Diego County to eight foster children. In 2015, Dr. Morris and her husband relocated to Lake Charles, Louisiana, where the work of the Roof Institute continues. Dr. J, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. I'm so glad to be in deeper waters with you, Nick. <laughs> I'm glad to have you on board. Now, what I'm curious about, Ratvastar, right is how is it that a professor of economics becomes an expert on marriage and family?
0: Well, you know, the short answer, Nick, is grace, uh, because I certainly didn't plan it. (laughs) I couldn't have planned it if I had tried, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, So so as my bio indicates, um, I had a pretty serious professional career, Mm -hmm. and at some point I decided that it was safe to have kids. Uh, that I was far enough along in my career that I could risk having children. And um, my husband and I tried to have kids, and then we were unable to have any kids. And so for about four years, we struggled with infertility. And that, for me, was a whole spiritual experience because it really taught me that I couldn't control everything by trying harder and you know, following all the rules of my social class and educational class and so on. Um, and so we ultimately... Resolved our infertility crisis by adopting a little boy from a Romanian orphanage, mm. and then six months later we gave birth to a daughter, and so within six months we had had two children uh, enter our home, and it, uh, honestly it was like a, a controlled experiment because the, the the three the boy who was by that time three years old had had so much struggle. Uh, behind him, and our little girl was born in the normal way, and you know, in a pretty normal home, and so on. And w- what you can really, what we saw very clearly, is that children need their parents. You know, children need their parents. End of story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, during those years when our our main focus was really struggling to to get him on track and to help his development and so on and so forth, um, it, it, we were preoccupied with that. But but all the while I was kind of looking around me and realizing, you know, our culture is not taking seriously the fact that kids need their parents. Mm-hmm. I had been kind of coached that you know, popping your daughter in daycare at age six weeks was going to be just fine. The kids would be fine, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and if you get divorced or remarried, or if you if you never get married in the first place, the kids are resilient. They'll all be fine, you know, and it just became more and more clear to me that that this was not true and and it couldn't be true and that this is a very serious wrong turn that we had taken as a culture mm. so i started really using my skills that i had as a as an economist and as a statistician and so on i just started directing some of those skills towards those questions and the re- the rest is history literally i mean that's that's what steered that's what caused me to want to study those subjects mm-hmm. And then I had the tools on board to do it. Mm. And once mm. the kids were a little bit more mm. grown up and independent, of course mm. you know our sons, our, our son who's named Nick, by the way, yeah, um, uh, he's now thirty and he's doing fine. So you know you don't have to worry that uh, mm. that his, he's mm. he's well lived out lived lived outlived of the the uh, trauma of his of his childhood. But um, as the kids got older, I decided mm. to create mm. an institute around the study and promotion of these ideas and mm-hmm. and that's what caused me to start the ruth institute in 2008
1: back in san diego i would say you did leave out one of my favorite lines and all about how you talk about having it two kids in six months time which is a record even for a catholic
0: that's right if you <laughs> listen to my podcast you've heard me make that joke many times and it never fails to get a laugh
1: <laughs> but it's true it's very true what i'm curious about with this idea of a sexual state is how is it that we can have a culture that is just so obsessed with sex. We have sex on our TV, sex in movies, sex in video games. We we have sex constantly. We daydream about it. We fantasize about it. But we are so clueless about it at the same time. Uh, it's astonishing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and and I honestly, I think that the
0: what you said in the first half of your dilemma, you know, we're obsessed with sex. It's in our face. It's on billboards and all the mm-hmm. rest of it. The kind of sex we're obsessed with is that we have mentally sterilized the sexual act mm-hmm. and and we and we are treating the sexual act as though it has no moral significance no social significance um, and and the only way you can do that uh, it actually takes a lot to do that but but in order to do that, a very basic prerequisite of that is that you have to convince yourself that no baby's ever going to rise from it. Because mm-hmm. if a baby's going to rise from it, it's obviously got social significance, right? right. <laughs> and it's obviously got moral significance. Mm-hmm. And And you wouldn't want to be in a society where everybody's – being sexually stimulated at random for no particular reason uh, if you thought that could lead to a baby right so so a, an absolute prerequisite for the for the dilemma that you see uh, that you you know i think correctly pointed called attention to uh, the absolute prerequisite, minimum prerequisite for it, is that everybody has mentally sterilized the sexual act. Mm. And, and many other things flow from that, of course, and there are other elements to it, too. You know, there are a lot of people making money off of that bad idea about sex. Mm. But at the very minimum, you, you have you can't take procreation seriously. I guess that's the way I would put it.
1: Now, a lot of this started back in the 60s with what's called the sexual revolution. Since some of my audience members might be younger ones like myself, I was born in 1980. Tell us a little bit about what culture was like before the sexual revolution and how the sexual revolution changed things. Well, that's really an
0: interesting question because in a way I lived through it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. there are, as, as you know, in the book, there are three sections that mm-hmm. I, and three basic big ideas that I talk about. And mm-hmm. one is the contraceptive ideology and then the divorce ideology and the gender ideology. And mm-hmm. uh, the gender ideology is basically saying that men and women... The sex of the body is irrelevant, and and is so and should be socially irrelevant. And mm-hmm. uh, if you see differences between men and women, that uh, that that's, that indicates something's wrong. You know, there's some kind of injustice going on, uh, and it's all socially constructed. Therefore, it can be socially reconstructed into a more just world. Well, the reason I bring that one up, Nick, is that I can tell you very clearly that when I was a little girl, it was totally okay for me to say. I want to be a mommy when I grow up. Mm -hmm. And by the time I was in college, it was no longer okay to say that. Mm. (laughs) So somewhere in there, something big happened, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the big thing that happened was this thing that we now call feminism, but which, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like to use that term. I, I have a whole section in the book about, you know, kind of deconstructing that label a little bit because mm. it's, it's, it's trying to suggest that this is the only possible path that is pro-woman. Mm. And that's completely false, you know. Um, it, it's a, in a sense, it's a term that bullies people. Right. Like you have to agree with it. You have to, you know, you have to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. So so that's one big thing right there. I can tell you when I was a little girl, it was okay to say I want to be a mommy when I grow up. And then and that's the gender ideology. The divorce ideology is when I was a little girl, uh, I knew in my whole school, Mm -hmm. my elementary school, I knew one family that was divorced. Mm -hmm. One family family that was divorced yeah. and everybody thought that was the weirdest thing and the saddest thing. And, you know, it, it's, it was, a, it was a tragedy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those two things Feed each other. That the idea that it's okay to um, to to switch out the parents whenever you want to, to switch out the relationships whenever you want to, the divorce ideology is is propped up with no fault divorce, institution of no fault divorce that didn't exist when I was a little girl. And so, if if when I was a little girl thinking, uh, I, I want to be a mommy when I grow up, behind that was the idea that. I'll get married before I have any children and I will stay married to that same guy for a lifetime. And Mm -hmm. he won't, he won't ditch me for a a younger babe or, and I don't have to have a job in order to protect myself in case he leaves or whatever. You know, that, that was not even a thought in your mind. Daddy and mommy are together for a lifetime. That's, that's, that's what's normal. That's what's expected, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, 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 that's that's a piece of it, the n- no-fault divorce and everything that has followed from that is huge. That has had a huge impact on people. Um, and then the third piece, of course, is the contraceptive ideology. Um, actually, it's the first piece uh, in the book. I, I discussed that first. Um, when I was a little girl, you thought, you, you know, you were kind of taught in whispered tones that if you have sex, you'll get pregnant and that would be a bad thing. And so don't have sex, you know? Um, and, and it's true that it, it probably we should have had better instruction than, than what we had. But by the time I was in college, uh, I, I went to Oberlin when they started having co-ed dorms, I went to mm-hmm. the first school in America that had coed dorms. Now, having co-ed dorms would have been unthinkable without the whole contraceptive mentality operating in the background that you can have sex without it being a serious worry, without pregnancy being a serious worry. You see what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah. So all of those things work together to destabilize the family, um, to, to undercut the idea that kids need a mom and a dad – and that adult society has an obligation to provide that to mm-hmm. children, and to structure itself around the idea that, that that this is a just entitlement of children, and that and that mm-hmm. adults should sacrifice themselves for children rather than children sacrificing themselves for adults, which mm-hmm. is approximately what we have now. So that that's that's kind of the short version of what mm-hmm. it used to be like, what it's like mm-hmm. now. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, of course, there's much more we could say about each aspect of that, but that just, that's the. That's the general uh, way it went down. And when we say this, the 60s was a crucial time, that's true. But a lot of the groundwork for it was, was being laid even prior to World War II. You know, there were the people who were working on it had been working on it for a long time before it kind of all blossomed
1: there, you might say, in the, in uh-huh. the 1960s. So that's the short version. Something important about all this also is that you do have sections in the book about this is what the church says mm-hmm. about such and such. But at the same time, the data that you have, it's not, we believe this because this is what Jesus said. You could be an atheist and agree with the data you present, couldn't you? That's right. That's right. And and that
0: was always my inclination to present it in that manner, Nick, um, mm-hmm. because... Um, but well, for a number of reasons I mean first of all it's my training you know I don't have yeah. any formal training in theology or philosophy or right. anything like that you know so it's my training that's what I'm used to mm-hmm. but also I do I do think that um, it's important to to make our arguments and our point of view mm-hmm. as accessible as possible to as many people as possible mm-hmm. uh, so so when I first wrote the sexual state, I didn't really have very much Explicit about church teaching in it. My editor said, "Hey, this would be a good idea." I ended up with a Catholic publisher, which I I didn't know where I was going to end up. I shopped it to a number of conservative publishers, which is kind of an interesting story too. But anyway, I ended when I ended up with a Catholic publisher. They said to me, "You know, why don't you just spell out this is a church teaching?" You know, and and as you know from the book, those are very short little chapters. Yeah. Um, and and by and large, the things that I have to say in there. I, I support them with Catholic documents and stuff, but you know this is the common heritage of almost all the churches for a long, long time. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so and and a lot of, uh, as you know, I have a lot of followers who are who are not Catholic, and I, I view myself, including as myself, built, including your your divine self. Yes, of mm-hmm. course, <laughs> and um, I I think it's really important to be building an interfaith coalition to roll back the sexual revolution and to to build a Christ-like society, you know? And Mm -hmm. there are so many people who agree on on a lot of these points that, um, and, and as you say, the data is on our side. The science is on the side of Jesus.
1: Hi, this is Jay Warner Wallace. If you're a fan of clear thinking and of being able to make the case for what you
0: believe as a Christian, to be able to make the case for truth, well, this is a great place to learn how to do that. This is Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. Nick has a number of great guests on his show, and I've been just honored to be one of those guests. So if you want to carve some time to be able to become a better Christian case maker, this is the way to do it, right here at Deeper Waters with Nick Peters. You
1: know, all these things that you say that we've come to believe now what i find incredible in the realm of apologetics is i'm having to defend statements today 20 maybe even five years ago i never would have thought i would have to defend i I never would have thought i'd have to defend there's a difference between men and women and now i talk to car students who think they're so enlightened because they know that's total baloney Right, I know. That's why I put that one chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. Are men and women really different after mm-hmm. all? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And that chapter, you know, it go- no, you're totally right. And, and, and the, re- the reason that's happening to us, Nick, mm-hmm. is, yeah. that, is that we have not adequately responded to the earlier rounds of the sexual revolution. And therefore, it just keeps going. You know, mm-hmm. it just, it, just keeps, it, it keeps rolling. They never look over their shoulder and say, gee, did, did it work? Did the last round work? never mind, you know, just plow ahead with the next new bit of craziness. And so the gender ideology is extremely toxic now um, and, you know, getting getting crazier all the time because what it's doing is deconstructing the body itself. Mm. This is a claim that the human body is unimportant um, and, and that the human body is somehow something that needs to be transcended. Well, you know, if you, I, I don't know how much church history you've had, but this is Gnosticism, man. This is the oh, yes. oldest, oldest, and most persistent heresy. Of uh, you know, Augustine was fighting it. Aquinas was fighting it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it's it's and we're fighting it in a in a new and more toxic form because it's got all this technology to back it up. You know. Um, so anyway, that one chapter in the book, I'll just mention for your for the benefit of your listeners, who should really go buy the book. But definitely, and that one and that one chapter in the book, um, I start. With, a, with an article that deals with differences between boys and girls in utero, okay? So the mm-hmm. differences between boys and girls appears before birth. You cannot tell me this is socially constructed. You cannot mm-hmm. tell me that the body is insignificant. When you have differences, more boys, and listen, get this, more boys are conceived, but fewer, but more boys die before birth. So there's more stillbirths, more miscarriages, there are more, as the author puts it, obstetric catastrophes that take place for boys in utero and immediately after than for girls. I mean, it just goes – and then it's downhill all the way. Boys have more struggles in every area, whether it's academics and anything that, that, that you can name. The li- higher likelihood of various dis- uh, disabilities and disorders and so on and so forth, much more likely for boys than for girls. So this is not what, – what is this, male privilege? I mean, what the heck where, How can this possibly be that all of this is a social construct? This mm-hmm. points us to the fact that there are differences in the body and that the body is significant. And that's the point that the true revolutionaries despise, Nick. They mm-hmm. despise the fact that the body is important. They want to be above it somehow, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, that's what we're dealing with. That's what you're dealing with with those college students who think they're so special because... Because boys and girls are really the same, and you can change your gender and you mm-hmm. can change your sex and all this stuff. You know, we're so sophisticated, we're so special. No, you're not. You're just out yeah. of you're just
1: out of touch with reality. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't but think back to my interview with Nancy Pearcy on her book Love Thy Body. I'm yeah. sure you're familiar with it.
0: Yes, I am. From, I read it. I read it in manuscript. I think I've got a. I hope there's a blurb from me on the back of the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We talked about it quite a bit before she wrote it. It's a great book. I'm yeah. so glad you talked to her. Yeah, anyway, go yeah. ahead about Nancy. Yeah.
1: Well, it's just that, that's the whole thing she says. We have to emphasize the body. And, you know, I'm a married man, and I can look at my wife's body and say, her body is very different from mine, glory hallelujah. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm talking about differences between men and women. It's a lot more than just the body. The very way she and I think about different issues, I, I can think her and say, Honey, you're thinking, honestly, it makes no sense to me at this point. Yeah, right. Like, if right. If she has a problem and she shares something, I'll say, Oh, okay, well, here's what we do about that. And she's saying, No, I want you to just listen. And I, Uh-oh. why would we just listen about it when we could do something about it?
0: <laughs> oh, Nick, that is the classic... <laughs> disagreement between husbands and wives she just wants you to listen i will i will affirm this as a woman myself mm-hmm. and and by the way just for the benefit of your listeners i've been a woman my whole life okay <laughs> good I, yeah right um yeah she does she just wants you to listen mm-hmm. and you here's a point feminism completely obscures Men are hardwired to want to take care of women and please women and protect women. Mm-hmm. You are hardwired to want to solve her problems, mm-hmm. right? And so there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but at some point, you need to set it aside and go, "Okay, honey, yes, honey," <laughs> and, you know, and listen, listen to her. Because you, you need that experience, and she needs that experience. And then at some point, the problem needs to be solved, and you'll have two or three ideas, and she'll be ready, and, and you go solve it, you know. Uh, um, and and that, that's how you work in a complementary manner, husband and wife, right? Mm-hmm. That you yeah. complement compliment one another, and that's a good thing. And this is designed by God to keep us from being crazy and, you know, on a number of levels that we can be crazy if we're all wrapped up in ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. um. So, but that that's hilarious, actually. I mean, that's so
1: classic. <laughs> so, how is it that each of these ideologies does something to destroy marriage today? Well, that's really interesting that you put it that way. Why do
0: you put it that way, that, that it's destroying marriage? You, do you, you see that as the crucial, uh, the crucial thing?
1: Yeah, I do, and I really think it's an ideology of say marxist governments to want to destroy the family unit because a family unit can stand independently on its own it doesn't need any government backing and so if you want to have the government be the sole power you have to eliminate the family that's exactly right that's exactly right
0: and 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 the 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 love between the husband and wife is the foundation of the family Mm -hmm. it's the foundation of the development of the child's personality it's the um it's the basis of the of the independent society. Each each little household is its own society, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and if you are a totalitarian, if you have totalitarian ambitions, you got to put a stop to that, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have all. You can't have that man running his own house, right? right. Uh, so so yes, it's Marxist, but the fascists had the same kind of thing running, mm-hmm. and I would say that the that the sexual revolutionary ideology. Uh, has things in common with Marxism, and there are a lot of Marxists involved in it, but there are also a lot of right-wing people, you know, who you couldn't properly call Marxists, who are nonetheless fully on board with the whole thing. And I I think it's more correct to say that the sexual revolution is its own totalitarian ideology, Mm -hmm. standing on its own. And yes, you are correct. It is attacking marriage directly through no-fault divorce, uh, indirectly through the gender ideology which destabilizes our need for one another, you know, mm, yeah. and our understanding of one another and also indirectly through the contraceptive ideology by making it seem that, um, that the sexual act is unimportant, steering the sexual act towards something unimportant, right, mm. um, and thereby destabilizing the thing that can hold the family together, which is the love of the mother and father for each other you know sometimes we can come together in a one flesh union at a time when we're not really all that happy with one another and we are now feeling a little better <laughs> towards mm-hmm. each other you know i mean this is designed by god yeah. that the sexual act builds a bond between us and also produces babies it's a social act it's the ultimate social act so if you can destabilize that then uh, everybody's off on their own. The men are off by themselves looking at pornography and masturbating in front of a computer screen. Mm -hmm. The women are hanging around, you know, working and trying to feel good about themselves because they have jobs and they're independent and they have it all together. And hopefully they'll have a baby at 40 with IVF or something, you know. Um, And kids are just left to fend for themselves, you know, unless they're lucky enough to be born to uh, a a two-earner, highly educated couple who are both you know, well endowed with resources and so on and so forth. In which case, they may be they may be uh, overindulged, but they may not be completely parented. Right? There are a lot of kids in our world who are underparented and overindulged at the same time. You know. Mm. Um, so there are a lot of ways in which we're neglecting kids, and all of these you know these three interlocking ideologies really isolate everybody. And that's, I think, what's making it more pernicious and um, and harder to deal with than e- than even the really cruddy, horrible ideologies of the 20th century. You know, so
1: yeah, I understand what you're saying very well about uh, how the union really kind of stabilizes things between the husband and wife. Because when I got married to my wife, I was just a couple months shy of 30. Mm-hmm. Now, um about 13 months shy of 40, so that tells you how long we've been together, and I was pure guy, didn't do pornography, didn't have sex before marriage, nothing like that, and so when I got married, all of a sudden I thought, okay, well now I see what everyone's talking about and such, and say, so, you know, I loved my wife before then, but after that, somehow that love just seemed to skyrocket. In mm-hmm. ways I could have never even thought possible. And I really think that's the way it's meant to be. Because as you and I both know. Marriage for love is really kind of a modern phenomenon. Because in the past it was. Marriages were arranged. And was more for social good. But I think the sexual union was meant to say. Once the man got in say, state. Okay here's. Here's your incentive to really love and take care of this woman, and God has a situation. I'm going to make it so that you're chemically going to want to do this more often, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the, uh, there are a, there are chemical bonds that
0: develop be- between sex partners, and which is one of the things that makes casual sex such a lie. Yeah. You know I mean there there really isn't any such thing as casual sex in it, in one sense of the word, you know so yeah. I, I think what you've discovered is very is very beautiful and very true and, and and I think that all I think all Christians believe what I'm about to say, which is that the human person fundamentally is meant for love. That yeah. God, God created us as an act of love. He created the whole universe as an act of love. He didn't need to create a universe, right? right. Uh, he didn't need to create any particular person, but he participated in the creation of each and every one of us, and he wants our participation to be an act of love, you know? And that's why we insist that the, the love between the mother and father is, is, in a sense, the birthright of the child. Right, to to be brought into being as a result of an act of love between the mother and the father. We know not that we know it doesn't always happen. But that's what God wants. And it it, it's so beautiful when you really think about it, you know. And Mm. I to me to me, I'm not ashamed to say that this is what I believe. This Mm. is what I believe. And I think most Christians agree with that and I don't see why we should be shy about that you know so even though I'm giving people all the data and stuff so my atheist science science guy friends can read it and be persuaded by it so on and so forth that I have all that there for them at the same time I want to say I will take our view of the, the, of the cosmos created by God and endowed with love as an act of love you know I will lay that view of the cosmos up against your view anytime
1: Anytime. our view is more appealing to any normal person something I, I often have fun with when I talk with atheists about sexual ethics and things of that sort and how they just seem to get so confused I, I like to just start having fun with them and say you know I think the problem is you just really don't think about sex as much as you should uh... <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, I just don't think you know as much about it as you think you do <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's very, that there's something to that. There's something
0: to that. And you know what I would say to anybody who's listening to this, any married people who are listening Mm -hmm. to this, um, you may not realize how much the gender ideology has really affected you, but I I would encourage people to, when you're looking at your spouse, when you're holding your Mm -hmm. spouse, let yourself notice, really notice all the ways in which they're different from you. You know, just, Mm -hmm. Just feel your husband's stubbly face, you know, and feel his bones and feel how yeah. strong he is, and just just revel in it, just enjoy it, because the feminists and their um, you know and their backers have tried to take that away from us, right? They have tried to say that this is somehow unimportant, uh, somehow uh, somehow irrelevant to anything. The fact that men and women are different, you know, we're supposed to not notice it. I'm telling you, the most revolutionary act you can perform is to notice, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. really embrace it and notice Mm -hmm. how different your husband, your wife is.
1: mind, when you're listening to Dr. J, Jennifer Roback Morris here on the Deep of Wars podcast, talking about her book, The Sexual Estate. But if you're here next week, we're going to be talking about old preachers and what they have to say for us on Christian Apologetics. And my guest is going to be Troy Frazier, who runs the Revive Thoughts podcast. Guy in touch with me and said, hey, I want to tell you what old preachers can tell you about apologetics. So we're going to be discussing that. You know, as soon as you talk about noticing the differences, one thing that I've always noticed since we've been married is that if I feel on my body and such my skin I, I tend to feel bone very easily it's rough hard and I don't think it's just because I'm skinny <laughs> I think it's because I'm a guy yeah. <laughs> but my wife's skin by contrast just seems so soft and delicate it, it just always amazes me every time
0: that's wonderful that's wonderful. Mm. And, it, and it's true. And, you know, my husband and I, are we're in our 60s now, and it's mm. still true. It's still true, you know? Mm. I mean, I'm not as soft as I was. He's not as firm as he was. But it's still true that we're different, mm. and you can still enjoy it
1: and and revel in it. Mm. And uh, that's, that's very beautiful, Nick. You know, something else that uh, I do think you talk about in the book, it's been a while since I got to go through it, but even many Christians seem to be buying into this lie today, it happens so often, is the whole idea of cohabitation mm. before marriage. If it's something like, You know, you, we need to test it out, make sure we're compatible. And on, on paper, it sounds noble to an extent, but it really doesn't work that way, does it?
0: No, it really doesn't. And, you know, I didn't deal with cohabitation specifically in this book because I've dealt with it in my earlier books, I, especially in my mm. book, um, uh, Smart Sex finding yes. a lifelong love in a hookup world. I really do The dealt- first book of yours I ever read, by the way. Oh, is that so? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. But in, in that book, I really dealt with, uh, with cohabitation. And we, I, I also have a book that I co-authored with one of my colleagues. It's called 101 tips for marrying the right person. And in that, which is, you know, designed for younger people discerning their, their vocation to marriage and so on. In that book, we have two whole chapters on cohabitation and why you shouldn't do it. And if you have cohabited and now you're getting married, here are some things to look for, because it has been shown, Nick, that mm. couples who get married after cohabiting have not only do they have a higher probability of divorce than people who didn't cohabit, which uh, you know a lot of people don't know that, but that's true. Um, the but but it's also the case that there's a specific set of problems that have been identified uh, that. Formerly cohabiting couples are more likely to encounter than couples mm-hmm. who never married, who who didn't live together. And so, so we kind of list list those in that book, Hundred One Tips for Marrying the Right Person," and some of them include things like um, they don't they don't spend as much time together, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they are there. They have trust issues. They're more likely to have trust issues, right? Well, that's that's part of the package of cohabiting that you've kind of practiced not trusting. Right, you've got your toe in the water of the relationship, but you've always got the other toe out the back door. You know, you're always you're hedging your bets, and you've spent you know maybe a few years hedging your bets, um, and that's a habit that you need to work on to get rid of. And so that's another way of of approaching the same set of data, right? That that data is there showing that there are problems associated with cohabitation. So one way is to say don't do it in the first place, and the other way to deal with it is to say if you've done it. Don't be surprised that you have this set of problems. And, of course, the sexual revolutionaries never tell you either half of that equation, right? They say right. It's, all, it's all wonderful, it's going to be better, blah, blah, blah. And, and honestly, you can look at the literature, the professional literature on it. When people first started testing this question, what happens if you cohabit? All, everybody thought, Everybody just assumed that cohabiting would be good for your relationship. They just and they they're like busily trying to explain away the results, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you can't explain away the results. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, those those results are pretty stable. Um, So that's the way I would put it. You know, if you're listening to this podcast and you did cohabit, or you, Mm -hmm. you know, you are married and you used to cohabit, or something like that, don't be surprised if you're having this kind of set of problems because you're not the only person. Who's Mm -hmm. gone through this and who's having these problems, which is another thing the sexual revolutionaries try to do, is to isolate you, right, Mm -hmm. and make you feel like if you're having problems, it's not the fault of our ideology. Oh, my goodness, no. You just are not cool enough. You are just not together enough. If you would just get rid of your old, tired, religious baggage, blah, 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 you would be fine. You know, that's the way they treat people. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, And, and yeah. that's that's one of the things that I think the sexual state does a good job of unmasking for people. You know, so if people read that, then they can kind of mm-hmm. go, oh, oh, it's not just us. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we're not the only ones, you know.
1: Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone again also at this point that here at the Deeper Waters podcast, everything we do is supported by listeners like you. I really encourage you to go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. There's a link on the side that says something along the lines of help support for work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click on that, you get taken to the Ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. Those are my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation there. You can get in touch with me, or my wife, Allie, or Mike, or Debbie. and You say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We'll give that donation. It will be tax-deductible. You can buy books that I have either written or co-written, ebooks. One that I wrote, A Creed for the Ages, The Apostles' Creed, and Today's Christian. Or ones that I co-wrote, God and Natural Disasters, Defining Analancy, Contextualizing Analancy, Groundless, Christian Answers to This Generation's Question, and The Mention of Ours Project, another great one to talk about. And Folks, if you can't do any of these, just please go on iTunes and leave a positive review for Deeper Waters podcast. i love to see them. Now, Dr. J., do you have an organization or a charity or something like that that you'd like to see people donate to?
0: Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, I, I founded the Ruth Institute in 2008, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ruth Institute is now uh, really a global operation. Uh, we have I I guess I've figured out I have like eight employees now. (laughs) And when we have our staff meetings, we have every time zone in the United States represented on there. Um, And we have people, of the people who are employed by us, we've got uh, Catholics, evangelicals, I've got a Jewish guy working for me now. I've got an Orthodox mm. priest working for me now. I've got a Mormon woman working for me. Nice. And what we all have in common is that we believe that marriage is ordained by God and that the human body is significant And all the things we've been talking about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, by all means, people should contribute to the Ruth Institute. Uh, we have a special thing going on right now that if you become a monthly donor of $10 a month or more, we will send you a copy of The Sexual State. Um, and we also have a very active Facebook page. So if you look for the Ruth Institute on Facebook, you'll see all kinds of things going on over there. Mm -hmm. So now what's the website again for that? The, the website is ruthinstitute.org just Mm -hmm. ruthinstitute.org. Um, and, um, that's where you can go and donate. That's where you can go and sign up for our monthly newsletter, our weekly newsletter rather. And, and let me say something about the weekly newsletter. Um, it's very important that you sign up for our newsletter for this reason. You probably know, Nick, and your listeners probably know, that organizations like Facebook and Google and YouTube are uh, attacking and deplatforming uh, people who hold traditional morality, people who, mm-hmm. who teach and hold to various aspects of traditional Christian morality. Uh and uh, you know so speaking out against um, gay marriage or transgenderism that can land you in facebook jail you know yeah. as they say i've seen it
1: happen right
0: right and i know a guy who lost like half of his twitter followers with a stroke of a pen somehow you know i mean they're just mm-hmm. they're awful the the big tech yeah. guys are really awful but if you're on somebody's electronic email newsletter list, they can't really stop that. <laughs> they, they can't stop me from sending emails to people, at least not yet. They haven't been able to do that. So mm-hmm. so if you're counting on connecting with us on YouTube, and we do have an active YouTube channel and we have a podcast as well. If you're counting on connecting to us there, that's great. We want you to come there. But that can be deplatformed. That can be shut down. That can you know we can end up in YouTube jail or whatever. But yeah. if you go to us uh, and go directly to our website, ruthinstitute.org. If you sign up for the weekly newsletter, you will hear from us, and you will know what we're doing, and you will get our information and our unique take on mm-hmm. these very important issues that, you know, our masters in high te- in the high-tech land just don't want you to hear about, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, y- you should be suspicious. If they don't want you to hear about it, you know, maybe you need to hear about
1: mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And Since you mentioned this topic, let's get into this one a little bit. And that's when you said gay marriage, or as I prefer to say, the redefinition of marriage. That's right. That's right. Now, when this was going on, we were told, you know, it's not going to hurt your marriage. It's not going to change things. Everything's going to be working out just the same. Well, what has been the result of it, and what do you think will be the future result of it from here? What difference does it make? really if gays say hey we want to be married too well i i think uh, enough time has passed that you can see some of the impact of it already and
0: and i predicted that a lot of people wanted to talk about religious liberty and that they would be coming after christians and people who objected to it and that's true and that has happened it's happened a lot so that that the people who said this was a problem they were not wrong But I have always preferred to emphasize something other than religious liberty because I think those other consequences deserve more attention. And one of the things that has happened is that uh, parenthood has become even further destabilized. So kids can have three parents on a birth certificate. The name mother and father is not on the birth certificate in a lot of states. In fact, that was one of the first things they had to do after marriage was redefined, is go through the family code and remove the term mother and father and replace it with the terms parent A, parent B, uh, generic, gender-neutral words like that. Mm -hmm. So you end up, you have to disconnect parenthood from biology. That is in progress, and the full result of that is not going to be seen for a while. But you need to understand that this is happening, right? (laughs) And so children... The idea that children have a right to their mother and their father, that's out the window. That is gone. Mm -hmm. If you're lucky enough to have a relationship with your mother and father, that's nice for you. But there's no understanding or presumption that every child is entitled to that. And so that we absolutely insist on that at the the Ruth Institute. Every child has a right to, to a relationship with their mother and father unless some unavoidable tragedy prevents it. You're entitled mm-hmm. to that. That's your birthright. And you're also entitled to know who your parents are. None of this mm-hmm. business of falsifying birth certificates, okay, and putting, you know, donor. Your, my father's name is Donor. That's wow. crap. That's That's terrible. That's a terrible thing to do to a person, you know, to, to, to deliberately conceal the identity of one of their parents from them. And so th- that goes for adoption, too, by the way. You know, we're not in favor of falsified adoption certificates either, you know, the, the, for the same reason, right, <laughs> for the same reason. But um, so that's one whole area. The other big area, Nick, is that as soon as, uh, as the Supreme Court redefined marriage, very quickly after that – all of the resources of the LGBT lobby pivoted away from marriage and it pivoted towards transgenderism. Mm -hmm. If you notice, that's what happened. Even I didn't predict that. (laughs) I mean, I didn't know how aggressively they would move in that direction. But I think I understand why they did it and how they did it. Because the point of redefining marriage it was never just to help gay couples. It was never to make your lesbian niece feel better about living with her partner. That was not what it was about. It was about destabilizing the idea of, of the sex of the body being significant, right? Gay marriage, the three things that I have in my book, the redefining marriage moved advanced all three of those ideologies, right? So saying that marriage doesn't have to be a man and a woman says that man and woman is insignificant, saying that kids don't really need their own parents, that's the divorce ideology right there, right? To say that there's no difference between a sperm donor, an anonymous sperm donor, uh, and, and, and two mommies, that that's the same as a mother and father, that is saying kids don't really need their parents. That's advancing the divorce ideology. And of course, the contraceptive ideology that says that sex is normatively sterile for the law to claim that the sex act between a man and a man is the same as the sex act between the man and the woman and that no special uh, acknowledgment needs to be made of the possibility of, of procreation oh, yes. you know right so so redefining marriage moved the ball forward on all three of those fronts right mm-hmm. all three and but but for the gender ideology that is where they pivoted the most radically and all of the money and the resources that were used to promote gay marriage and marriage equality, whatever the euphemism mm. you want to use for it, all of that is now turned towards the project of transgenderism, of completely destabilizing the relationship between your body and sex <laughs> and mm what what we call gender, What is now, what we're now supposed to call gender. Um, that the, mm-hmm. that the, so, the social organization does not have to take any notice of the maleness and femaleness of the human body. That's what this is all about. And without the Obergefell decision operating in the background, I don't think they would have been emboldened to take that transgender leap. That, that's mm-hmm. my analysis of it, Nick. Hello, this is Andy Bannister, the director of the SOLAS Center for Public Christianity, and I'm delighted to endorse and uh, recommend the ministry of Deeper Waters Apologetics. I've been hugely impressed watching the work that Nick has done over the years, building up the website and the podcast, the quality of the guests that he gets onto there. And I love the way that uh, the ministry challenges and encourages both Christians and those who don't have a Christian faith to really think through the claims of the gospel. I'm also impressed by just how Christ-centered and Nicky, all that he does is his desire to see people encounter Jesus Christ and the life-transforming truth of the gospel. So uh, more strength to them. It's been a privilege to know Nick over the years. And I hope Deeper Waters goes from strength to strength. And if you haven't yet discovered it, check out the website deeperwatersapologetics.com for yourself.
1: It's kind of odd that a lot of us started with feminism. And now feminism is really in a very difficult place mm-hmm. with all of us. As I was saying, you know, feminism started... I mean, of course, I'm a supporter of what would be true feminism, that women being treated equal in areas where they are equal, you know, equal to human, things of that sort, and so, things like that. But the idea was that it was thought that men are superior, and now a lot of feminists are going to say, no, women are superior. I like what Peter Craig says, men are superior at being men and women are superior at being women. But now with transgenderism going, I like to go to be feminist and say, "Well, gosh, things have changed now. Men, we're not only superior. Men are now only superior at men's sports. Men are superior at women's sports as well now." Right, right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, I I don't know if you follow uh, the Christian Post, the
0: the mm-hmm. publication Christian Post. There's a reporter over there named Brandon Showalter, who is doing mm-hmm. outstanding work. Not only on reporting on transgenderism, but he is tracking the fact that there is now a very strong rift between the feminists, particularly the lesbian feminists, and the transgender movement. So, Mm -hmm. what you just said there, Nick, is the key to understanding it. You know, now you and I, as Christians, look at this and go, well, this incoherent ideology is devouring itself you know because uh the, the feminists wanted women to be able mm. to participate in sports and now the men are taking over women's sports it's going to be the end of women's sports so mm. th- those were feminists who were who embraced feminism in good faith to help women right uh and wow. that's what they thought they were doing but now you can see that that the the, the women. Were, we're being used in a way uh, as a as a battering ram you might say to to break down the social uh, structures around male and female and the feminists are no longer useful for that now the trans people are more useful for that and so the feminists who are just simply enraged a lot of them uh, because These are men who say they're women who are wanting access to women's spaces. They're in women's domestic violence shelters. They're in women's prisons. They want to be in women's bathrooms or taking over women's sports. These feminists are furious, absolutely furious. And Brandon Showalter, the reason I'm mentioning him, he's the guy who's talking to them. And who's interviewing them and who's telling their stories, who's giving them a platform. And, he, and he's ministering to them at the same time, Nick, I'm telling you. Mm. He's doing a beautiful work, you know, just being there saying, yeah, you're right, this is wrong. You know, tell me all about it. Let's report on it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how women's bodies are being threatened by the transgender ideology, you know. Um, so it's the LGBT movement. There's now big trauma between the L's and the T's actively at war you know and of course mainstream media is not going to tell you that you need to come to the Ruth Institute to find that out you know or read the Christian Post to find that out uh, but but it's a fact that the L's and the T's are at war with
1: each other for any listeners one, yes I am already considering very much being in touch with this guy seeing if he wants to come on the oh, show oh yes
0: topic. yes oh he'd be a great guest <laughs> you, you mm-hmm. want him yeah for sure
1: yeah yeah uh, I mean, I honestly have such a hard time understanding this. First off, this whole idea that kids, even preteens, get to di- dictate to their parents that they're the wrong sex somehow, and their parents should know better, but they give in to the kids' demands. And then the, uh, the second thing I see happening from this is all these uh, things with... Uh, boys and men taking advantage of women in locker rooms and bathrooms. And uh, I was just sarcastically say, gosh, if only someone could have seen something like this coming, we could have prevented it when anyone with a clue could tell you. Most any high school boy would be happy to show up at school one day and say, hey, um, I'm a girl. I need a shower with a girl." Right, right, right. And, and you know, I, I, I'm going to
0: take issue with something that you said.
1: Uh,
0: And and that is that sometimes the parents are giving in to the child's demand to become a a different sex. Sometimes that is happening. But it's also sometimes happening that the child is saying something and someone other than the parent is saying, listen... You need to do this or your child's going to commit suicide. And in some cases, mm. they're saying, you need to do this or we're going to take the child away from you. And mm. this is becoming a problem, a big problem uh, in divorce cases, as you, as you may imagine. I mean, I think, I think oh. you know, one parent thinks one thing and the other parent thinks the other thing. And you know, the state's going to take sides with the uh, current transgender ideology. That's happening now. Um, and yeah. so they're, you know, they're, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking. Is. Uh, seeing seeing these things happen, and I, I just talked to Michelle cretella who's the president of the um, American College of Pediatricians. She would be another great guest for you, Nick. Um, mm-hmm. She is the most outspoken uh, medical critic uh, of transgenderism, and she, she just explained to me the the never mind the surgical treatment of transgenderism. Mm-hmm. Simply the uh, the hormones that they're giving small children you know to to block the onset of puberty and then once puberty has been blocked then to give them cross hormones that the the hormones of the sex that they aren't you know so that they can continue the facade of being the opposite sex that they are it's it's doing terrible things to their bodies irrevocable things to their bodies and it hasn't been studied you know it has mm-hmm. not been thoroughly studied yet they're, they're experimenting on these kids for all practical purposes so it's it's mm-hmm. really showing that this ideology of the sexual revolution this mm-hmm. it, it is a it is a it's a totalitarian ideology it desires mm-hmm. to consume everything in its path you may not mm-hmm. dissent against this ideology and the fact that mm-hmm. it's completely crazy The fact that it's irrational, the fact that it's at odds with reality, that's not a problem. From their perspective, that's not a problem. It just takes more power. You just need more power to make people do something crazy. If you can make Mm -hmm. people say, Bruce Jenner is a woman, you can make them say anything. And and that is really, in the end, the point of all of the sexual revolutionary ideology. It's a power game, and it has been from Mm -hmm. the beginning. And in 1965, you could be forgiven for not seeing that, but I don't think you can. I don't think you can avoid seeing it now. You know, the way all of these pieces have developed, we haven't even talked about the family courts and the injustices that that come through the family courts and the way that people's lives get manipulated and controlled uh, it, it through through divorce courts. Things would be absolutely unthinkable in any other context. Yeah. You know, for some functionary of the government to be telling you whether you're allowed to go to your son's baseball game or not. You know, I mean, it's completely mm. crazy. But that's what we're living in. People have been yeah. putting up with it for all this time.
1: And sadly, we don't have the time to get into that kind of thing today, although you do cover it in your books and your podcasts. But I do want to ask one more question, <coughs> Lisa. Next year, we've got an election year. What kinds of things should we be concentrating on doing? What I mean, Are there any saying some candidates also we should look and say okay that's the candidate i need to be careful to not vote for or when that's say uh, that's one i should vote for
0: you know nick i don't pay too I, I honestly i don't pay too much attention to electoral politics because i, mm-hmm. I got other things i gotta do <laughs> um mm-hmm. but but i i do think you need to take this christians need to take these issues very seriously indeed uh do mm-hmm. not assume that uh that that you you got to assume the worst about most of the politicians honestly, yeah. um, and what I would say to people is that you need to be involved in your local elections. You need to be involved mm-hmm. in your local school board. You need to be at your school board and tell them you don't want transgender ideology being taught in your school. And and I would say specifically to people who have been re- who are retired, if you're retired, you need to get back on the playing field. Because they can't take your job away anymore, can they? They can't fire you, nope. right? So you, but you may have connections, you may have um, knowledge about your profession or your occupation, uh, and you need to be involved in steering it away from some of this crazy stuff. Because the people who are people who are still school teachers, for example, people who are still mm-hmm. school teachers. They are mm-hmm. under enormous pressures to conform. Christian people are being driven out of professions because they won't go along with this stuff. Well, I mean, that, that, that's something that has to be addressed. I can't address it. You can't address it. Only teachers and former teachers, you know, really mm-hmm. can do something about it. So I would really call on people to, to think that through uh, and use your discernment to figure out is there, <laughs> is there something local where you can have an impact uh, with, with what you know and who you know.
1: Dr. J, it has been such an honor and a thrill to have you on here, and I hope this is the beginning of a great relationship between the Ruth Institute and Deeper Waters, because we'd love to have you back on here again. Um, Do you have a blog, a website, an email, way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and your work? So, yes, you can follow us at uh, uh,
0: ruthinstitute.org, ruthinstitute.org. That's where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can follow us on Facebook, the Ruth Institute Facebook page, and you can go to our YouTube channel uh, where we have, last year we had a summit for survivors of the sexual revolution, and we had a full day and a half of lectures and talks and, uh, and workshops and stuff, and that's all been recorded, and so you can go watch that uh, and, and learn more about every aspect of sexual revolution from watching those talks, and that's not just me. Right? Those are other people who have survived the sexual revolution, or people who have other kinds of expertise. So follow our YouTube channel. We have a podcast, uh, the podcast that includes my talks and my radio shows. This will be on the podcast. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'll cross-link it. Um, oh, excellent. Right? Um, and, um, and, and, and our Facebook page and our newsletter. And, you know, by all means, join us because we need you. We absolutely need all hands on deck.
1: Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave for the Deeper War's audience today? Um,
0: love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as your...
1: and you can't go wrong. I think a very wise man said that same kind of thing. Yeah, I heard. That's what I heard.
0: That's what I heard.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I steal all my best material. (laughs) Well, Dr. J, I... And like I said, I'm very really grateful to have you on. Hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thanks
0: very much, Nick.
1: And I can mind everyone that next week we're going to have Tori Fraser on talking about Revive Fox. What do old pastors from a century or so ago have to tell us about Christian apologetics today? Now I am Nick Peters and I am signing off.